I'm on. Well, good evening, everyone. I was going to say a very warm welcome uh, to Brooklands this evening, but uh, thankfully it's not quite as warm as it has been. Uh, the weather's kind of on our side, and we've also worked hard with uh, a few uh, AC and fans around here. So I'm, I'm Harry Sherrod. I lead the, the talks program these days. Um, I'm also involved, obviously, in membership. I want to draw to your attention that I think a number of you here this evening are, are not members of, of Brooklands. We have the membership team down at the back there. They'd be very happy to talk to you about all the many benefits that you can get from uh, joining as a, a Brooklands member. So the Mosquito, obviously an aircraft that has a great deal of affection with a number of people judging by the very large and enthusiastic uh, crowd here this evening. So without any further words from me, a uh, big welcome please for uh, Alan Pickford from the People's Mosquito. Thank you very much, Harry, for the, the invitation to come along tonight, and welcome to you all. Um, as Harry said, it's quite warm in here tonight, so I will try and keep this as short as I can to make sure you all stay fairly comfortable. I don't want to see you falling asleep because it's too hot in here. It won't be because you're bored, I hope, but more likely because you're asleep. Uh, <laughs> because you're hot. <laughs> and you're asleep, of course. Anyway, um, tonight's talk will cover brief history and a little bit about the construction of the Mosquito aircraft before I move on to spend a little bit of time talking about how the People's Mosquito was formed, uh, introduce the key team members to you and, and then talk about our plans to return a UK built Mosquito to our skies and give you the latest status of the project and then at the end there'll be some time for a brief uh, question and answer. So, back in September 1939, Sir Geoffrey de Havilland wrote to Air Chief Marshal Wilfred Freeman, and to save time, the words he wrote are on the screen, I won't read them all out to you now, but basically he was of the opinion that, based on what he'd already achieved with things like the Comet Racer and the, um, the Albatross airliner, he thought he could build an aircraft out of wood that would be fast enough not to need any armament to protect it, and so that was the, the, the idea that he'd had. In October of 1939, Eric Bishop, who was the leader of the design team, and his team assembled at uh, Salisbury Hall, just outside of London. And on the 1st of January of 1940, they received from the Air Ministry the specification for what was to become the DH-98 Mosquito, and design actually started. Now at that time, most of the aircraft production was using aluminium, and as I say, de Havilland had already proven that he could make aircraft out of wood very successfully. And indeed in the Mosquito there were six different types of wood that were used. There was birch, spruce, balsa, ash, douglas fir and walnut were the, prime, the, four main, the, sorry, the six main woods. They were lighter and more readily available than the aluminium during the war and also most importantly used skills that weren't traditionally associated with the aircraft industry. So coach builders and cabinet makers were primarily involved in building the airframe for the Mosquito. The first prototype, W4050, was completed in November 1940 and it took its first test flight on the 25th of November 1940. So that's basically 11 months from the start of the design until the first flight. On the 29th of December 1940, de Havilland actually demonstrated the aircraft to Lord Beaverbrook, who at the time was the Minister of Aviation Production. 
They'd already placed an order for 50 aircraft, but after that demonstration flight, the, the order was increased to 200. The second aircraft, uh, W4051, flew for the first time in June of 1941, and that on the 13th of July, so just over, we just passed the anniversary of that actually happening, that aircraft was delivered to number one photo reconnaissance unit up at RAF Benson. Just a few facts about where the aircraft were made, and again, I'm not going to read out all of the figures, so you can see them on the screen there. But there were a number of factories in the UK making the aircraft, primarily the de Havilland factories at Hatfield and Leavesden, but also Standard Motors at Canley, Percival Aircraft at Luton, Airspeed down at Christchurch, and de Havilland's uh, factory at Broughton, which was, I think at that time, was actually called Howarden. Broughton is now the Airbus factory, so it's still in existence today. And we'll talk a little bit more about that a bit later on in the talk. But there was also production out in Canada and in, the, in Australia, um, with over 1,000 aircraft being produced by de Havilland in Toronto and another 200 down in Sydney. Um, there was a huge expansion of production. Uh, there was something like over 400 different subcontractors involved in the actual construction of the aircraft. Uh, furniture makers like Parker Knoll, piano makers, small engineering companies, even down to some of the smaller components being made by housewives in their, in their sheds in the garden. The design wasn't simple. There were over 10,000 drawings actually needed to produce the aircraft. Um, so, you know, quite a major activity. And again, that's partly because you were able to spread the construction out amongst so many different subcontractors with that number of drawings. Next few slides um, will show you some of the phases of construction. And I always believe that a, a picture is worth a thousand words, so I've saved myself about 4,000 words with the next few slides. Um, this first one is actually the manufacture of the, the fuselage on the mold. Um, fuselage was an inner skin of plywood laid onto the mold and then a layer of balsa and then an outer skin of plywood. And as you can see on here, you can make out these steel bands which are actually used to apply pressure to actually form the shape of the fuselage over the mould as, as it sort of, it's a fairly moist atmosphere that it has to be in to get that shape and it will, it's a, I think it's sort of some form of steaming process actually allows that to, to form like that. Again, fuselage assembly, a bit like an airfix kit really, the, the fuselage made in two halves. Um, and then when it's all done, what they would do was that down the port half of the aircraft would be the control cable runs and on the starboard half would be the hydraulics. And you can see the photographs at the bottom here, actually people working inside the fuselage to put the, all of the, the cabling and hydraulics into the, the fuselage. The other thing you can just about make out in the, probably can't write at the back, but the fuselage actually is ranged with the grain spirally to ma maximise the strength. So that's something that I certainly didn't appreciate. We've seen some of the drawings that show that now as, as to how it actually has to be laid to maximise the strength. Again, on this one, there's a few more pictures of, uh, of, the, of the wooden construction. Uh, and again, you can see this spiral jointing of the, of the fuselage. The jointing strip that joins the two halves together and also the joint between the fuselage and the wing. 
come onto the wing in a minute, uh, but you can see here the cutout for the wing. In fact, the wing was made as a single piece construction. So if I just flick back, you'll see the, here the cutout. So they actually make, you cut out and then drop the fuselage over the wing so to make the, the wing and fuselage in one piece. Again, something you won't be able to see right at the very back, but the sign in the corner of this, or the distance on this picture, says, whatever you do, don't spare the glue. Um, the glue initially was used in the construction was a milk-based casein glue, but as I'm sure some of you will remember, if you have milk for any length of time, it starts to develop a mould. And they had the, the very same issue with the casein that it would develop a fungal growth inside the aircraft, which obviously wasn't too pleasant. So in 1942, um, the casein was replaced with a synthetic glue uh, known as beetle glue. Next slide gives you a cutaway drawing uh, showing a bit more detail of the construction. The, the wings, there's two main spars, one at the front and one at the back. And then on each side, I believe it's 16 ribs to make up the wing. And then the, these are covered with a fabric material called Maidapalum, um, which is then doped and painted. So those of you who in your childhood may have made model aircraft, probably used balsa wood and, and tissue paper and doped it. That's pretty much the same techniques as we used on the Mosquito. In terms of the, the engines, um, mozzies were powered by two Rolls-Royce Merlin engines, uh, 27 litre V12 engines. Some of you I'm sure are well aware of this fact is that the engines were not handed. So as you can see the picture up here, both propellers rotated in the same direction. This caused the aircraft to have a tendency to turn to the left on takeoff and a lot of trainee pilots lost their lives, sadly, when they didn't understand how to correct that and the aircraft would crash on takeoff. There was a lot of cases of that happening over the course of the, the time that the mozzies were in service. The armament, say the, the aircraft initially it was, it was planned as a twin engine fighter bomber, um, crew of two, um, with four Browning 303 machine guns in the nose and then under the belly of the aircraft were four Hispano 20mm cannon which is the, the top picture on the left here. On some variant, or sorry, on, on one particular variant, the FB-18, um, the cannon were replaced with a 57mm or, or six-pound Molens anti-tank gun um, and that's the main picture here and the picture on the right is the FB-18. It fired this very large shell and that was an extremely destructive weapon. Um, some of you I'm sure may have already seen uh, talks by Flight Lieutenant Des Curtis who was a navigator with 618 Squadron. We've actually got copies of his book on sale at the back afterwards if you're interested. Des, bless him, he's 99. I was, had the pleasure of attending his 99th birthday party at the weekend. He, I think, is probably the only person surviving who was involved in flying the, the FB-18. But it's worth noting in this audience that the other thing he was involved in was testing of the highball, the highball bomb variant, which, as I'm sure some of you already know, the highball adapt 
was, a, was adapted at Brooklands by Vickers. So all of the highball carrying mozzies that were operational were, came through this, this site to have that modification installed by Vickers. Um, in terms of bombs, those that, that, that carry bombs, certainly the fighter bomber initially would have carried two 500-pound bombs in the bomb bay, and later models would also have two bombs under the wings on pylons, although in some aircraft, as, as you can see here, those were replaced with drop tanks, and also later on uh, with rocket projectiles as well. The bomber variant could carry four or 500-pound bombs in the bomb bay, um, but obviously didn't have the cannon. And the later models of the bomber could also carry the 4,000-pound cookie bomb. In total, over the 10 years that the Mozzie was in production, uh, 40 different variants were produced. So there was night fighters, fighter bombers, bombers, photo reconnaissance, trainers. It truly was the first multi-role combat aircraft way before things like the Typhoon and the Tornado and Jaguar. After the war, um, the RAF continued to use the Mosquito uh, for high altitude photo reconnaissance and MET surveys. And the last combat sortie was carried out by a PR-34A on the 15th of December 1955 when they were photographing communist strongholds in the Malayan jungle. As well as continuing with the RAF, a number of other air forces used mosquitoes, uh, notably the two that I've shown on the pictures here. Top one is the Israeli Air Force, who purchased a number of ex-French fighter bombers, uh, which they used during the Suez Crisis in the 1950s. And a bottom photograph is the National Chinese Air Force. They bought about 200 Canadian-built mosquitoes and those were used during the Chinese Civil War. One of the things about the, the Chinese nationals, they actually had, I mentioned earlier on, the issue with the aircraft turning to, to the left as it took off. The Chinese really suffered massively with fatalities as a result of that until they brought in George Stewart, who was a pilot, with, I think, with 23 Squadron during the war. Um, got over a thousand hours service, uh, flying hours on the Mozzies, and he was employed by the Chinese National Armed Air Force to actually train the pilots in how to successfully take off, which he achieved, and after he took over the, the training, I don't think they had any serious accidents with that. The other thing, uh, after the war, about 140 B-35 uh, bomber variants were converted to target tugs by Brooklands Aviation, who were based up at Sywell. And these were used by the civilian anti-aircraft cooperation units in the 1950s and early 1960s to tow target drones for gunnery practice. The last unit to operate the Mozzies was number three CAACU, which was based at Exeter. And that's probably where my love of the mosquito started because as a kid I was in grew up in Exeter, I had mozzies flying over my house every day. So I got very used to the sound of those Merlin engines that you'd have heard on the, on the film just now. The farewell fly pass, which is the photograph here, uh, took place on the 9th of May 1963 when the unit was disbanded. 
And pretty much every aircraft in that photograph was used in the filming of 633 Squadron and possibly in Mosquito Squadron as well. Sadly, a number of the aircraft were destroyed in the making of the film. It was, of course, back in the 1960s. They didn't have CGI as they do today. So if they wanted to have one catch fire, they had to make it catch fire. And so, obviously, with wooden aircraft, once you set them alight, there was no, probably no, not much way of stopping them. So they were completely burned and destroyed. However, a number did survive, and those went into museums around the, around the world. In terms of in the UK, um, two notable ones which are shown here, TA-719, which definitely was in the previous photograph. That's now at the Imperial War Museum at Duxford. And the markings that that aircraft carries are the CAACU markings. So that's exactly... A lot of people say, why on earth is it suspended from the ceiling? As far as I'm concerned, having grown up, that's how I saw the aircraft every day. It flew over the house and I would see the yellow belly on that aircraft. So that, that's, for me, that's perfect. On the, on the right is another aircraft, TA-639, which is at the RF Museum at Cosford. And that's actually painted up in the colours of Guy Gibson's aircraft when he was with 627 Squadron flying, flying the Mosquito. In addition to those two aircraft, there are three complete airframes at the de Havilland Museum, including W4050, the original prototype. There's also one aircraft at the RAF Museum at Hendon. And there is one aircraft, HJ711, which is a night fighter, that's actually now based up at East Kirkby um, and is doing taxi runs with the Lincoln Aviation Heritage Centre there, alongside Just Jane the Lancaster. So if any of you ever go up to East Kirkby, you probably will see and hear Merlin engines running up there inside a Mosquito as well as inside Just Jane. There are, I guess, somewhere like 30 aircraft in museums around the world. Um, there are only four, currently there are only four Mosquitoes that are airworthy. And of those four, only one is quite loosely, to, to, to be honest, but it is an original airframe. It's had a lot of restoration done on it, but it is still, in general, the original airframe. And that was one of the aircraft that was built down at Airspeed in Christchurch. Um, it was owned by a gentleman called Bob Jens in Canada. He sold it about six months ago to a flying collection in Canada, and about a, two or three weeks ago, it was actually transferred over to its new ownership. In addition to that aircraft, there are three New Zealand-built aircraft that were built mainly with the moulds that we'll, we'll talk about in a minute that were um, built by Glyn Powell in, in New Zealand and by uh, Warren Denholm of Avspex. First of those, KA114, um, went to Jerry Yagan in Virginia Beach and that flew for the first time in September 2012. Um, TV959 um, owned by, was owned by Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, until he passed away. And I understand, I heard this at the weekend for the first time officially, um, that has now been sold to one of the Walton family who are the owners of Walmart. So the, the entire Paul Allen collection has now been transferred over to essentially Walmart's family. Um, the final one was PZ-474, which was finished a couple of years ago. Originally, that went to Rod Lewis in the States. Rod was a, an oil-rich Texan. Um, and he's recently, in fact, so I guess it's almost two years ago now, he sold that to a gentleman out in California. So that aircraft now is in California. 
In terms of in the UK, the, the last aircraft in the UK was RR299, which was at that point still owned by uh, British Aerospace. And that crashed at Barton on the 21st of July. Wow. It's the anniversary of that, last, of that crash today. I've just realised I hadn't even... Do you know that hadn't even registered until I, I just thought that? So it's... Wow. 26 years ago today that we lost RR299. And sadly, both crew members perished in that, in that crash. So... Moving on then, let's talk a little bit now about the People's Mosquito itself. Um, you've seen a little bit, hopefully, in the, in the trailer that we ran before the, the talk, a little bit about what we're, what we're about. Our aim is to return a mosquito to our skies uh, so that we can remember our heritage and the thousands of people who were involved in building, flying, maintaining the aircraft, to educate and inspire future generations as well. Um, we need to recognise the mozzie as one of the finest examples of bridge engineering. And in the words of the documentary that featured uh, Arthur Williams, it's the plane that saved Britain. We wanted to, to use the principles of the presentation aircraft that existed back in World War II. You may be familiar with things like the, the, um, the Black Horse Spitfire, which was built with money from the employees of Lloyds Bank. That's the one that was recovered off of, out of the uh, peat bogs in Somerset about probably seven or eight years ago now by Dan Snow. So it was given a lot of TV coverage to that. Um, but there are a lot of other uh, presentation aircraft that existed that, that you still see flying today. Some of the Spitfires, there's the City of Exeter, the Pride of Kent. Those were, again, presentation aircraft where the, run, the money to build those came from the public of that area. And so we want to use that same principle of getting public support to build the aircraft. Um, obviously, we'll also need um, donations from major companies. And obviously, there are, as I said, there's 400 subcontractors involved in the building. And many of those still exist today. So it's our hope that in the, in the next few years, we'll be able to encourage some of those to actually give us some financial backing for the project as well. And... It's our aim to, to uh, get all of the money to, to actually do... Well, two things we've already done is locate and purchase the, the, the remains of an aircraft to then carry out the restoration and return that aircraft to our skies. The aircraft will be owned and operated by the People's Mosquito Charity, uh, but it will be, in the words of the, the last few words on that slide, it will be a mosquito for the UK public because a lot of the money from, for that project will come from, their, from them. So how did we start? Back in December of 2011, John Lilly, who's now our MD, he was working in China at the time, um, come back home for Christmas. He'd seen how the Vulcan to the Sky Trust had generated the substantial amount of money that they needed to return XH558 to the skies. He'd also seen that the first flight of KA-114, which is actually the aircraft shown here, um, had taken place down in New Zealand. And he tweeted over Christmas, he said, hey, you know, if they can do it, why can't we do that with a mosquito in the UK? And he had about 12 people came back with positive responses that they'd like to get involved in doing that. And so in early 2012, the People's Mosquito Company was formed as a company limited by guarantee. Uh, ultimately, it became a charity, but in those early days, it, it was 
uh, was more of a, a company. The, that group of people morphed into the board and ultimately the trustees of the charity. We're using social media to do most of our uh, spreading the word, if you like, uh, because that gives us a global appeal. We've got a very strong IT presence, which we believe gives unrivaled access to the project. We've got our own website. We've got a Facebook page with over 20,000 followers, over 13,000 followers on Twitter. We've also got Instagram and LinkedIn accounts, and we've set up a, a YouTube channel, which has had over 300,000 views of the various videos that are on there. And those videos, by the way, include little vignettes of production of the aircraft, the work that's already been carried out. There's a number of short videos, maybe five, ten minutes long, that show how we're progressing with the project actually in the field right now. We also have our own supporters club, which I should have said at the beginning, my role, initially I was the finance director, which we'll, we'll cover on the next slide, but I'm now moving into a new role, which is the chairman of the supporters club. Uh, we've got about 13,000 members. I think in total we've probably had over 2,000 people subscribe at various points, but a lot of those have subscribed for a while and then left. I'm keen that we grow that membership again now. Obviously, things like COVID haven't helped because our intention was to have regular events. We've had a couple, uh, and I'm very keen that we expand that. And I'm hoping somewhere in the south on the 18th of February next year, to have a Club Members' Day which will be celebrating what became known as Operation Jericho. I have to choose my words carefully because a lot of people say it wasn't Operation Jericho. We know that, but it's the one that people refer to now as Operation Jericho. It was Ramrod 564 at the time. Um, but the authority on that operation is a gentleman by the name of Dr. Robert Lyman. And Robert has given me his commitment that he will come and give a talk somewhere. We just need to find a venue that we can accommodate that talk somewhere. I'm hoping somewhere in this area, but we'll see how that goes. Um, watch this space, as they say. The other thing I should mention, which I, I, I'll come back to this at the end. I know that on your chairs, I think everybody hopefully got a, a leaflet. We do as well, one of the things that we're encouraging people to do is sign up for our weekly newsletters, which allows us to keep in touch with people and to tell you how we're progressing with the project. It's also a way of demonstrating to the Heritage Lottery Fund how much support there is for the project. If you say you've got, as Vulcan to the Sky did, 30,000 subscribers to their weekly newsletter, you know that you've got something that there's a lot of interest in. We at the moment are about 6,000 and we're growing that number by the week. So please feel free, the details are in the leaflet, sign up for the newsletter. It costs you nothing, but it's a way of enabling you to keep in contact with what's going on and find out what things are coming up in, your, in the area as well. We also um, have our own online store. We've got a, a very, very small selection of merchandise at the back of the room. Graham, who's come up with me from Southampton to help tonight, Graham and I are actually at a steam fair down in Southampton area starting at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. So we didn't bring too much up with us tonight because we need it all down there for the, the show down there over the weekend. But uh, we've got a little selection and we'll say we've got an online store. 
Over the last 12 months, we've sold £36,000 worth of merchandise online, which is, with the absence of any air shows, that's been a, a major source of our revenue for the last 12 months. So let's talk a little bit about the team. Um, our patron, I mentioned him a little bit earlier on, Arthur Williams, the guy who narrated the, the plane that saved Britain. Very, very enthusiastic, very passionate about aviation. Um, he joined us about two or three years ago now. John Lilly's our MD, I mentioned him earlier on. He was actually involved in the restoration of TA-719, the Mozzie that's at Duxford right now. Ross Sharp, our Director of Engineering and Airframe Compliance. He spent his career in aviation conservation and museum curatorship and what he doesn't know about the Mosquito is not a lot. He knows pretty much everything. I've yet to find anything that he's come back and said, I don't know the answer to that. If, if I've got a question, if anybody asks me a question tonight and I don't know the answer, I should probably ask him and he'll tell me the answer straight away. Um, other director, uh, director of operations, um, non-executive director, is Wing Commander Bill Ramsey, who some of you may recall the name. Bill was the pilot of, or captain of the last flight of XH558, the Vulcan. Um, but he's a career RAF pilot, over 6,700 hours on 35 different aircraft types, including BBMFs, Lancaster and Dakota. And also he was the commander of the Red Arrows for about four years. Uh, it's always interesting when you go to an air show with Bill and he will give you a very, very detailed critique of how well or not the, the Reds are actually flying that particular day. Um, Steve Manning is our company secretary and commercial director. He takes care of all the company official business and oversees all of the IT systems and manages the, the retail outlet, which, is, which now has its own separate board. We formed our own trading company. Um, which takes care of all the merchandise. Myself as Director of Finance, um, and as I say, moving now into the role of Club Chairman, uh, spent my career in the oil and gas business, working for ExxonMobil, developing refining uh, estimates, estimates for refining projects around the world. So when I retired, I was looking for something different to do. So I looked at this and I thought, well, I'm sure they could use some help with estimating costs and schedule for the project. Here I am eight years later and I wonder why I actually said I was going to do that because we haven't done a whole lot of estimating yet because as soon as you estimate the number, it's wrong, but that's how estimating always works. Um, Mark Hitchcock's our retail director. And then last but not least, um, our patron in memoria, who was indeed our very first patron, is the late Captain Eric Winkle-Brown. Eric, very, very passionate about the aircraft and there's now a very brief video, which I will play, which shows you some of the passion. You look at, if you can look very carefully and see the twinkle in Eric's eye when he talks about that aircraft, having sat and talked to him for two hours, it was very infectious, very infectious. If you look at the British aircraft industry as a whole and during the war years, there were about five top manufacturers de Havilland certainly one of them. I had very high regard for them and the test team too. As you look through the air shows around the world, there's a certain dust of mosquitoes. 
here's one of our top airplanes and uh, not many around the world. Any attempt to restore, particularly to flying status, a mosquito would be a really gift to our heritage. We need something of this to remind the British public how it was and what were the tools that really saved the day for us. And uh, when you talk about that, the mosquitoes in there, believe you and me. First time I saw it, I realized it had all the looks of a potential winner. For its time, it was incredibly beautifully streamlined. It just oozed power, really. Naturally, when you have a looks like a good one, you expect it'll fly similarly, but it exceeded all expectations. And uh, was one of Britain's three great aircraft in World War II. We had, to my mind, three really greats. The Spitfire, inevitably, the Mosquito and the Lancaster. And um, they all had a huge part to play. Maybe the Mosquito more than most, because it was very versatile, fighter, night fighter, bomber, did the lot. And um, when it was flown as a Pathfinder aircraft, uh, it really showed its worth. So, do a little bit of a, of a timeline now for how we progress with the project. We'll start back in 2010 when, and this is actually before People's Mosquito actually came into existence, but in 2010, the mortal remains of a Night Fighter 36 RL249 were recovered um, up in Norfolk. The aircraft had crashed after takeoff from RAF Coldershaw on the 14th of February 1949. Um, and one of these uh, metal detecting fellows had, had come across these remains. Basically, the aircraft, as I discovered quite recently, um, pure coincidence, I was uh, up in East Sussex and I'd got a contact from somebody who said my husband uh, worked as a, a fitter on mosquitoes post-war um, and as I was up in East Sussex at the time I said well look I can pop in and have a chat with him and so I did and was talking to him and he said to me he said oh yeah he said I remember at some point he said I came back off of leave to find that all the other guys were busy dismantling a mosquito that had crashed and he said, we basically took all the, you know, anything that was salvageable, we took off, and then the rest of it, we, we just buried it. And I said, I don't believe this, but you're talking about the aircraft we've, we've recovered and are going to be building. So it was the same aircraft. Just, just absolutely amazing. Um, as I say, it crashed in uh, 1949. Um, we purchased the remains of the aircraft in 2014, and... In the CAA's eyes, and we've talked to the CAA about this, um, we have what's known as the mortal remains, everything that remains of that aircraft. Mosquitoes never had data, plate data plates, so you hear people talk about they can do a data plate restoration of a, of a Spitfire, for example, because as long as they've got the data plate, that's all they need. With a mozzie, there was no data plate, so the CAA say you have to have every single piece that remains of that aircraft to allow you to, to restore it or reconstruct it. 
So we have that now. We've got all. And as you can see, there isn't a whole lot. That's pretty much everything. Uh, with the exception of there's about a 12-foot length of the main spar, which we also have, that somehow survived the fire. But what they did, of course, post-war, after the crash, they were using it for fire training as well. So what was left, a lot of that got burned. There's one, you can see up the corner here, there's a very little, small piece of charred wood encased in metal, so it's survived. Of all of the bits that we've got, the gun ports here, which are the, these are the shrouds that are on the, the cannon in the nose section, those are potentially something that we can put into the final aircraft because they're not structural. They don't need to be tested by CAA to meet CAA worthiness requirements. We hopefully can use those. But everything else there, all of these exhaust stubs and the undercarriage legs clearly are not salvageable. But we have them, so that gives us the ability to do that reconstruction. So, as I said earlier on, uh, in July of 2012, uh, we became a registered company. And then in September of that year, John Lilly and Ross Sharp spent two hours with the CAA in Gatwick discussing our plan and getting their approval for our plan to rebuild the aircraft. At that point, the only place that we could do that was in New Zealand because the, the guys in New Zealand had the moulds, the guys in New Zealand had already done a couple and had all of the expertise, so we were going to have to go to New Zealand to do the build as well. And we'll talk more about that in the next couple of slides. In September of 2013, a year later, we did an online poll uh, to find out what people wanted the aircraft to be restored as. Because obviously with a number of different variants, there was plenty of choice. I think something like 53% of those polled came back and said they wanted the FB6, which was truly the iconic one. It's the one that was involved in most of the famous raids that were carried out by mosquitoes. So the, the raid on Amiens Prison, the Shell House raid in Copenhagen, the similar raid in Oslo, and a lot of the other raids were done with the FB6s. As we move on, in April 2014, and this was about the time that I actually joined the, the, the team. I wasn't involved early on, but around that time I joined in. And we started fundraising in April of 2014, and we launched our wing rib appeal, which was to get the 32 wing ribs built by Aerowood in New Zealand. We had a very good relationship. We'd already developed a very good relationship with Corin McRae, who owned Aerowood. And he had, been, he had everything set up to cut the ribs for, I think it was Rod Lewis's aircraft, PA474, that he was doing. And he said, look, if I'm cutting wood to do one set of ribs, I may as well do yours at the same time. Cost us £50,000 to do that. So in our eyes, that was a, a very worthwhile thing to actually start to get something physical that we could show people. So these are some of the, the ribs. We use these basically as demonstration pieces now because it's good to be able to handle something that's, that's real mosquito on the stand. And you can find for yourself how light and strong those ribs are. Um, the other thing we did in, in 2014 was we attended our first air shows. Um, the first one we did was actually up at Sywell. Um, and that was followed up by a couple of shows at East Kirkby, which was where, um, as I mentioned earlier, just Jane, the, the Lancaster, was there. And in 2014, that's when Vera, the Canadian Lancaster, came over. So 
At East Coke Bay, they had what was known as the three lanks. Although, sadly, on a couple of the three lanks days, there was only two lanks because one of them had gone technical. Um, but we did show up to those shows and got some interest in the project there. And in fact, Graham, who's, as I say, came up from Southampton with me today, that's the first time we met, was at one of those shows. And as we do, when we go on an air show, you start chatting to people about what we're doing. You ask them where they come from, and I'd found out that he lived about two miles away from me, and it's like, you mean we're both in Lincolnshire, we both all tra both travelled up. And that was the start of a good friendship. Uh, moving on then, uh, December 2015, so about a year later, Oh, sorry, I should have said as well, you know, we started with air shows in 2014. COVID obviously made a dent in the air shows around the, the, the country, but we're back again with air shows now. Over the years, we've been increasing our pool of volunteers that we, that we use to, to help on our stand at the air shows. And we're always keen for anybody else, anybody who's interested in volunteering, not only to, be a vo to work on our stand, but there's plenty of other things that we can use people's skills um, so anybody who's interested, please get in touch and we can certainly find some, some work that we can give you to keep you out of mischief if you need to be kept out of mischief, that is. Um, December 2015, next major milestone, um, we reserved the registration GFBVI with the CAA. So we obviously have to have a civilian registration for the aircraft. We knew that FBVI was available. Logical thing for us to do is to have that as our aircraft registration. So we've got that reserved and we're paying to keep that reserved until such time as we can actually put it on the aircraft. And then in March of 2016, um, next major step for us was we became a registered charity with the Charities Commission. That's a big step because what that does is it enables us then to claim gift aid on any donations we get. So now whenever any, anybody makes a donation, so long as they've completed the gift aid declaration, we can then claim 25% extra money out of HMRC uh, for that, that donation. The other major boost that happened in 2016, and this for us was a game changer. In October of that year, John, who was still working out in China at the time, had come back on holiday to the UK. Um, and he got a call from a guy who was an engineer at the Airbus factory at Broughton. And he said, John, I'm, I know you're in the process of looking to start building a, a, a mosquito. We're in the process of demolishing one of the buildings at, at Broughton, and I've come across a filing cabinet which is full of microfilm drawings of the mosquito. Do you want them? <laughs> if you do, you need to come here today because tomorrow they're going in the skip. John had, a, I think it was a Focus rental car at the time, leapt in his car, scooted over to, to Cheshire, and picked up two bags of microfilms weighing somewhere in the region of 70 kilograms. And he didn't count them out then, but since we've counted them, over 22,300 microfilm drawings. If you remember earlier on, I said there were 10,000 needed to build the aircraft. Well, we've got those drawings, but we've also got another 12,500 roughly, which are all of the other variants and all of the things that never made it past the drawing board. So we've got drawings for things like rocket-assisted takeoff of a wooden air fuselage. <laughs> I wonder why that one never made it past the drawing board. Also, ball turret behind the pilot. 
there was, they, they actually, at one point, actually considered putting a ball turret behind the pilot, to, to actually, which presumably would have meant a third crew member as well. But needless to say, that never happened either. The beauty of having those drawings, which, by the way, we've, there we've got them, we've digitised them, we've stored them away uh, and completely catalogued them. What that means is we've now got the original engineering drawings, which means that we can now manufacture any component in the UK. We didn't have that before. As I said, we would have had to go on to New Zealand. The Kiwis had some of the drawings. They didn't have the full set. And a lot of the things on the Kiwi-built ones is reverse engineered or taken from another aircraft. I know for a fact all of three of those aircraft have Spitfire Mark 9 radiators. They're not Mosquito radiators, but that's okay. They could, they'll fly. They'll keep the engine cool. But it's not a Mosquito radiator. Um, as I say, that gives us the ability now that we can do that, that work we could then do in the UK. So it's like, okay, we're starting to move towards a UK build now. Just very quickly, one example of one of the drawings, and the date on this one is significant. If you remember earlier on, I said that the demonstration flight to Lord Beaverbrook took place on the 29th of December. On the 26th of December, some poor guy had to go into the drawing office and complete a drawing for the rear floor rear floor cross member. We obviously don't know for sure, but I kind of suspect that they realised that they needed to put an extra bit of strengthening in three days before the test flight. Doesn't matter if it was Christmas, there was a war on, the guy had to go in and actually do that work. It was modified later on, but the original drawing is 26th of, of December. A couple of things that I was intrigued by. Um, first of all, I'd, I'd, I guess as a kid, I'd always been used to talking about things in tenth of an inch. But of course, when you're doing engineering, you need it decimal. So although you know, it was six-tenths of an inch, it had to be 0.60 because you needed it to that level of tolerance. You couldn't afford it to be, oh, it did, so long as it's in, it within, you know, close to the, the tenth of an inch on, the, on this ruler, that's good enough. The other thing is, notice how, if I can get it pointed over the right place, see how the grain is drawn on the wood? Vital. It's done for a very, very good reason because that is exactly how the grain has to be when the wood is cut to get the maximum strength out of that cross member. All right, so which is why it's there. I mentioned before the, the moulds that are in New Zealand, which we were originally planning to use. These are the ones that were built by Glyn Powell back in around, I think Glyn started somewhere around 2005. He had his own mosquito. Um, and he needed to make a new fuselage for that, so he realised the only way of doing that was to build a new mould, or a new set of moulds. He spent a lot of time researching and then building, uh, with a boat building friend of his, he built these moulds. They're made out of mahogany wood. Um, and you'll notice how there's a lot of cutouts. We'll come back to talk about these cutouts in a minute. But there's a lot of cutouts in this mould for the various strengthening pieces that go into the fuselage section. You have to have those in because you have to insert them as you lay the fuselage on the, on the aircraft, on the uh, mould. Uh, so that mould was used initially for Glynn's aircraft himself and then for the three aircraft that were built in New Zealand. As I say, those were the ones we were going to have to use as well until in October 2018, we were contacted by the Historical Aircraft Registration Society 
who had a museum in Australia who had the lofting drawings for the moulds. And there was something, I, can't, I don't, cannot for the life of me remember what, there was something that we had that they wanted, so we did a deal whereby we got the lofting drawings and they got the information they needed from us. What that meant, of course, was that we now had the ability to build the moulds in the UK, which all of a sudden opens up a whole new ballgame because when you start doing the full construction in the UK, you can then get heritage lottery funding, which we would not have been able to get for a, U a New Zealand build. More importantly, in some ways, it also gives us the ability to allow people to tour the workshops and see the construction taking place and use that as a fundraising activity. So we've started to do that. We'll talk more about where we are in a minute, but we've already done, I think, four days of tours of the factory. We sell tickets to, you know, you don't get there, go there for free, but our club members get tickets to go there at a price, and that's a way of generating the income to, to help build the aircraft. So that was one, another game changer. And then another one comes along the next, a little bit later on, when Aerowood, Corin McRae's company, went into liquidation back in, back in 2017. And Colin, uh, Corin, as I said, had, was a very good friend of ours, and he contacted us and said, look, my company's going under. Um, I've got all of the jigs and all of the tooling to make the wings, the flaps, the tailplane, and the bomb bay doors. I'd like to sell those to you guys um, if you're interested. And, of course, we said most definitely we are. Um, so we parted with the money required to, to get those brought over to the UK. They arrived in the UK in a little shipping container, uh, along with the ribs that Aerowood had already built for us back in March of 2019. And as you can see here, first photograph, this was 11.30 at night, late March. My wife, long-suffering wife, bless her, and I were sat on the waterside at Hive with my camera with tears running down my face as I watched the ship come in, because I knew the significance to us of what that, was, what that was carrying, which was all this kit on the right. And then, probably about a week or so later, Graham, bless him, with uh, the help of SJG Haulage in Southampton, got that container load of bits taken up to the Retrotech factory in East Sussex. So we now have everything we need to build the aircraft, apart from the money, which we'll talk about. So, where are we now? As I said, we're, we're close to completing the fuselage moulds, and I'll, I've got some photographs to show you exactly where we are in the next couple of slides. Um, those are the first moulds to be built in the UK for over 73 years. We launched the fundraising campaign, which we called Operation Jericho 2020, back in the spring of 2020, which you might think was a bad time to, to actually launch a fundraising campaign. I think, as it turned out, it was a good time because there were no air shows for people to attend in 2020. And so I think what we saw was that a lot of people realized that the money that they would have spent going to an air show, they could actually put that into our project. And we did very... For the, for a few months, we did very well until people started to realize that, yeah, maybe this COVID's going to take a lot longer to, 
to get rid of than we initially thought. Anyway, we launched that in, in the spring of 2020. Target was 250k to go towards the construction of the fuselage moulds. We achieved that target in around June of 2021. And since we started back in 2014, we've now raised somewhere in the region of 810. To be honest, now it's probably closer to 820,000 after quite a successful um, REAP weekend at uh, Fairford last weekend. We have work proceeding at Guy Black's company, Retrotech, down in East Sussex. Um, Guy, again, about, well, I guess it was probably 2018 when we'd started to get everything together. Guy came onto our stand at REAP. Um, had a long discussion with us, and his parting words will never, I'll never forget, as he walked away, he said, I think you've just convinced me not to retire yet. Guy and his wife both have very, very strong connections to the Mosquito, so they're vested in the project as well, which I think is a, is a, is a vital asset to have. Um, Guy's Retrotech company, I believe, is the only company in the UK um, that has both CAA manufacturing design and maintenance approval. So he can pretty much do everything for the, on the aircraft and will do everything for the aircraft. Um, but it's worth noting that of the total cost of the project, which our current budget is somewhere in the region of 8 million, but of course with current inflation it's likely to go up, but about 40% of the total cost of the project is going to be required to meet the CAA airworthiness regulations in the UK. So it's not insignificant, but we want this aircraft to fly. We don't want it in a museum. It, it has to be in the sky to achieve what we need. So that's the, the cost that we're going to have to incur. It's all the invisible work, all of the compliance, all of the record keeping, and all of the sample approvals that need to go on to, to get that aircraft airworthy. We are pretty much done with the moulds and as we move off of the moulds onto the next stage, that's the fuselage. And for the fuselage build, we've launched our Operation Crossbow 2021, mid, mid or, uh, June of 2021. And to date of our target of 600, as you can see there, we've somewhere about 180, 190,000 pounds raised to date. I promised you some photographs, so this is the, the moulds under construction at Retrotex. This is a purpose-built facility that was constructed purely for the fuselage for the mozzie. They have an old cattle barn in East Sussex, which they are converting over to be the, essentially the factory where the aircraft will be built. Um, if you do come down and have a look around that, at some stage you will see the plans as they are. It's still very much a construction site at the moment, but every time we go down there, you can see more construction has been done. Um, the moulds, as I say, we're, we're close to finishing them. What we realised was that um, the rear section, which you can see here, is already completed. All of the infills, by the way, I mentioned earlier on, Glyn Powell's used mahogany. We're using gelutong. Equally strong, but more sustainable. So, which is why we've gone down that road. You know, we don't want to... Uh, we want to be as sustainable as we can. Jelly Tong is, is shown to be a sustainable source of wood, so we're going to use that. It's easy enough to work with. We've got these sections already completed, but what we've realised is that we need to find... There's one or two key drawings that we still haven't managed to find out of the 22,300 that 
actually need to show us exactly where the position for a number of the little uh, strengthening pieces are in the front section of the aircraft. So we're working on that right now. We've got a team of about six volunteers doing all of the research into the drawings and developing a drawing tree. We've got a, a searchable database, which we've just about completed now, which actually allows you to call up. If you wanted a drawing for a fuselage, it will give you the full list of every drawing that's got the word fuselage in it, that sort of level of detail. So we're getting there. We're, we're close to actually starting work on it again. Other activities are going on as well. Um, we've started some of the bulkheads for the fuselage. This is, I think, bulkhead number three, which is one of the main bulkheads in the aircraft. And you can see we had a, a very skilled woodworker guy uh, working on that. We've also started on the instrument panels because one of the things that we realized was that we need something physical to take to air shows to show people things that are going to fly in the aircraft. We can't take a, a mold. It's 60 foot long, for one thing, so it's not easily transportable and we need it in the, in the shop to, to build. But we can, and we are taking around the bomb arming panel, which is the one on the right up there. We took that to a, a dinner we held up at the RAF Club in London in February, and that was on display at the Air to Two at Fairford last weekend, and generated a lot of interest because you can see something that's actually gonna be in the aircraft when it's finished. We've also been acquiring parts that will go into the finished aircraft. We've got a glycol header tank. That's the condition it's now in after being refurbished by Retrotech. Um, it wasn't quite in as pristine condition as that when it arrived. Um, we've got one of the propeller spinners and we've got a control column for an FB6. That we bought that in, a, in, there's a guy out in Canada who's got a lot of mozzie spares. He sold us that for about 5,000 US dollars. How much do you think it was going to cost us to get that control column into the aircraft? Have a guess. Anybody got an idea as to what it might cost? I'll tell you. 20,000 pounds. Remember I said about the CAA requirements? You look at that and you think, oh, that's fine, it's going to fly. But we've got to take that completely apart, test every component. If the component fails, you've got to replace it. If it doesn't fail, you can use it. And when you've done all of the testing, you can then put it back together again. Total cost of that, probably 20, it's probably even more now with inflation, but 20,000 20, was what we think at the time. We've also got the throttle quadrant. The Siamese ports on the exhaust system, um, we actually had a company sponsor those for us, so we got a, a little bit of money from an IT company, I think it was, who, who actually, we did some work with them and they, they gave us the money to, to pay for that to be done. And these are the rest of the control, pan, uh, control panels that are pretty much now, um, all of the instruments are in those, we've got all the instrumentation we need um, to put those together. So that's pretty much it. You'll be glad to know. Uh, you can start relaxing and maybe cooling off a little bit. Just wanted to say, um, Guy's last project before he started work on the Mosquito was a DH-9 World War I bomber, which flew for the first time in June of 2019. So he's got that. That took him 20 years of his own time and his own money. 
he's got support with us this time to, to, to raise the money, so hopefully it won't take 20 years. But that, that was his last project. So that was pretty much everything. I'll just leave you with a couple of images of how the mozzie looks in flight. You've seen enough of those anyway with the various videos that we've shown you during the day. This is the last, I think this is PA, uh, no, maybe it's not. It's one of the ones out in, in the US anyway. Um, so that's it. I will open the floor now to, to you for any questions and hopefully I can give you some answers to them. Okay, and Harry's well, gonna I'll do the walk, like, have walk we around one, and- we Just uh, one of these, yeah. It's always the way, Harry. The first one's right at the back of the room, right? Yes, Thank, thanks for a good talk. Um, I've got a book at home, can't remember the exact title, but it's about the Royal Air Force in the Far East during the, the Second World War. And it didn't always talk about the mosquito in glowing terms. It did mention that the long-range reconnaissance variant uh, worked admirably during the latter part of the war. I think it was a Mark 34, 36, you can correct me. Yep. But it said that RAF intended to have over 30 squadrons of mosquitoes in Burma, but that this never happened. Not only a fraction of that ever got to Burma. And the reasons were, as is sometimes mentioned, um, extremes of heat and uh, humidity and uh, things coming unstuck the glue and yep. having to nail sheets of aluminium to the upper side to reflect the heat. But the book also mentioned that not all the problems with the mosquito in the forest were, due, were unique to the forest. It said that in, um, even in Europe there were problems with um, the occasions where, when mosquitoes fell apart in mid-air and a lot of this was due to substandard uh, workmanship. Uh, you mentioned earlier that some parts were made in people's sheds and yep. that this was a problem. Well, an aircraft that was never seldom mentioned was the Bristol Bowfighter, which performed admirably. Okay. Yeah. Question is, can you expand at all on problems of shoddy workmanship uh, and um, how it was rectified? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. There was, I mean, obviously there were a lot of issues with the production. Um, there were issues with the glue. We know for a fact, as, as you mentioned, that the humidity in the Far East was, was such that they delaminated. And I know one, one of the museum pieces in the US uh, is owned by Kermit Weeks, and that was flying until about three or four years ago, but that started to seriously delaminate, because it's down in Florida, and again, high humidity. The good news is that with modern glues that we'll be using, um, we've been told that they will guarantee 50 years life on the airframe. So clearly we, we won't have any issues with, with the delaminating. Um, in terms of shoddy workmanship, yeah. They wouldn't have had to deal with the UK CAA. <laughs> there was a war on, so you know, it was, if it, if it don't, you know, the chances were, Pretty much, I think at the time, the expectation was that none of those aircraft would last probably more than 25 flights, because that was kind of what they were expecting. You know, if you flew, flew 25 times, the chances are you'd be shot down. So I don't think anybody would have expected the aircraft to have a long life, and, and clearly, you know, some of them have survived pretty much. Um, as I say, one only is, is still kind of an original airframe that's flying. But no, the, the, the bottom line is that with the current climate on airworthiness, 
we will not have any issues with with that sort of shoddy workmanship and and with modern glues and modern technology we will not have any issues okay thanks alan any other questions from one conveniently just here uh, good evening thank you very much for a very interesting talk um the first question really is uh, you mentioned some missing uh, instructions out of the 22,000 that you do have. My question is, to what extent do existing aircraft in museums help you out with measuring things or just uh, filling in the gaps? We, won't, we, we haven't, as, as yet, we've not needed any help. Um, there are one or two things I know that at some point we will probably need to, to talk to Warren Denham about, and we'll... We'll do that at the appropriate time, but pretty much with, with the information we've got, with those drawings, that's pretty much everything that we need to, to do it without, without too much consultation. So we've got good relationships with a number of the guys down in New Zealand, and we, we've already been consulting with them over some of the stuff anyway. Okay? Okay, thanks. I think there's another question just here. Oh, okay. There's one, there's one down here, Harry. <laughs> I'm working my way that, in that direction. Hello, uh, just a quick one, thank you. Um, what about engines? Ah, yes. <laughs> I always, it's funny, I, I never mentioned that because I, I know somebody will ask that question at the end. Um, the likelihood is that Guy Black will build the engines himself. Um, he has the, ex the expertise, he has the experience, he's got a Hurricane and a Spitfire already. And... Guy's comment to me was, yes, I could get a, somebody else to build the engines. However, as we were talking about with that control column, if somebody else builds the engines, Guy actually has to sign everything off. So if somebody builds the engines for us, he will have to take them all apart, he'll have to test every component, and he'll have to put it back together again. So why would you do that? You wouldn't. You'd just get Guy to build them in the first place. And then you know as he builds it, he's testing the components before they go in. So that's most likely what we will do. And what, okay. what's, the, what, what's the actual source of the engine that he's going to rebuild? There are enough Merlin engines around to act as the starting point in terms of the blocks. Um, most of the, 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 the engine components it will probably build from scratch. As, he goes, as I say, he's done it before. Yeah, hi, thanks for the talk. Um, hey. Now you've got the instructions and the moulds, are you just going to make some more after you've done the first one? <laughs> let's, let's get the first one done first. But yes, I mean, we've seen... In fact, we were talking about it when we were eating, eating our, our meal beforehand. It's an obvious logical revenue stream for us going forward is to be able to lease those out to other people who might want either to build a mozzie themselves or in some cases maybe um, have an existing museum piece that they need to replace part of the fuse lodge on so you know we can do things like that it's definitely something that we will be looking for i think the comment we, we as i say we were talking about it over over our meal the view that most of us have got is that once you've got one, other people will want one. And, you know, if you think about, I, I, I think back 10 years in terms of Spitfires. 10 years ago, there were, I think you could probably count the number of Spitfires flown on the fingers of one hand. 
There's now, what, 40 flying? And, you know, there's a, there's a good little business being had done with it. Obviously, the Mozzie is going to be a much more expensive aircraft to build in the first place, but I don't see any reason why once one's built, we've got all the, all the expertise there to, to carry on building them. And as I say, we will have a, a fully blown facility in East Sussex to do just that as we go forward. Um, yeah, two or three questions, really. Firstly, is it true that initially the Air Ministry weren't convinced by Geoffrey ha de Havilland's proposition? Yep, most definitely. It was uh, Wilfred Freeman uh, was the only person who was really convinced that it would work. And so for a long time, the mozzie was known as Freeman's Folly because he was the only person. And it was interesting... Um, I did a talk at the Boscombe Dead Aviation Collection back in March, um, and Wilfred Freeman's grandson was there. And, you know, to, to actually meet somebody like that, it's like, wow. Yeah, but yes, definitely, that was, it was laughed at by a lot of people. They just didn't think it would work. But thank God he got, the, he got his way and it, it did go ahead. And in terms of the conversation about glue, is it true that what we now know as Araldite was sort of developed yes. in conjunction with the mosquito. Yes, it was. Yes, it yeah. was. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and then the final thing, performance, really. You haven't mentioned so much about the performance of the aircraft in terms of its speed and capabilities. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is it. You've, you've only got so much time to, to, to cover. But top speed of the mozzie was, I think, something like 430 mile an hour. Certainly the, the prototype was faster than the Spitfire was at the time. Because they, they, they sent the Spitfire up to sort of fill, to fill bit, <laughs> and it couldn't keep up. <laughs> so, but yeah, they, I mean, it was until it was pretty much the only thing that, would have, that the Germans had that could keep up with it was the ME262. But even that could only keep up with it over a short distance because it didn't have the range. So it would, if, if you could get, and again, we've talked to Colin Bell, who's, bless him, he's 101 now, was one of the few mozzie pilots who actually managed to outrun a 262. He said he just put it into a bit of a dive and off he went. And he said, I went down to sea level and by the time I got down to sea level, he couldn't keep up with me anymore. So he lost him. Thank goodness. Good evening. The Good evening. Uh, mosquito has been witness to many, many battles. And I just wonder how you're going to handle the next battle that you're going to have on your hands. Who, who's going to be the pilot? Oh, <laughs> gotcha. That's a good question. Um, and again, something I sometimes do get time to cover. Um, one of the things, I should have mentioned that, that one of the things that um, Bill Ramsey's job is to do is to actually um, locate pilots, suitable pilots. We've got quite a few who want to do it. The question is, are they good enough? You aren't, we're not going to put you know, a £10 million aircraft in the hands of somebody, we can't afford to get it wrong. It's got to be right. Um, Bill has already done a lot of work. I mentioned George Stewart, the guy who was training the, the Chinese. We've already, Bill has already talked to George and spent a lot of time talking, discussing the, the techniques of actually taking it off. Of course, Bill, having flown the Lancaster and the Dakota, has some experience, but... By Bill's own admission, I'm too old. He says I'm too old to fly that. He does on the simulator, and, that, and of course, that's the other thing is that we've got simulators that we can use, so we can do a lot of 
work on simulators to train them up now. Um, but as I say, there are, I know there is one, one of the original pilots of RR299 is still, in, still alive. Um, I think he's probably in his late 50s now. He's already sort of on our radar, as are a number of other experienced pilots. But you've got to have that right experience. We can't afford to just let anybody go on it. I, I was going to ask you the question about the simulator. Presumably you'll design the simulator so it has this turn-to-port yes. characteristic, so the yeah. pilot gets used to that then? Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, of course, I mean, that's something that they didn't have in the war. <laughs> I think they, they had the link trainer, but that wasn't quite the same. Yeah. Sorry, thank you. Um, yeah, great evening. Thank you very much. Well, Regarding the aircraft, obviously there is a Blenheim flying, which is a twin-engine aircraft. Yes. Does that have the same characteristics, do you know? I don't think it does. So I don't it, think it right, does. Right, so you've got contra-rotating. Because yeah. John, yeah. John Romain flies that, doesn't he? Yes, he does. So have you approached him about the Mosquito? Not yet. Because he's obviously, he's arguably the most experienced pilot in the world for that type of aircraft. Yeah, yeah. Now, we, we, I would say, we, you know, to be honest, it's a long, it's a long way. Yeah, mind you, John might be retired himself by then. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, I say, we, 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 we've got our, we've got our eye on a few people. We've got to, as I say, we've got to find somebody who's young enough that you know in sort of 10 years' time they're still going to be flying. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think, I, I think that's just, just to be clear, I mean, Nobody has actually asked the question, what's the time frame? But I'll answer it anyway, because it's probably something that is on your minds. Realistically, if, if somebody came to me today with 8 million, I'd be very happy. But I'd also say, it's still, you still won't get that aircraft for three or four years. Um, obviously, the speed with which we can build is limited by the funding. Um, I think realistically, we're probably talking about five, six, seven maybe even eight years. It, it all depends on how quickly we can raise the money. Um, I know, we were, again, with something we were talking about earlier on, um, a lot of people that I know are interested in the project are buying lottery tickets every week, and they all say, when I win the lottery, you're going to get the money. I tell you what, if all of those people that have said that to me had given me £10, <laughs> we, we would be quite rich by now. <laughs> Still wouldn't have bought the aircraft, but it would be getting there. But I mean, that's one of the key things um, that I'd, I'll just leave you with this thought is that the key for us, I believe, right now is, is a steady flow of money coming into the project because that will enable us, and you know, we've already started it. We've, we're putting a, a fixed amount every week to Retrotech now. It's not enough at the moment to pay somebody full time. So... What I, my ultimate goal at the moment is to get to the point where there's enough money coming into the charity every month to afford a full-time Retrotech employee who can say, that's my job, I'm building that aircraft. Obviously, he won't be able to build all of it, but he can do a lot of the woodworking, which is the key bit right now. Um, once we get to that point, because at the moment we're doing very much stop-start, and that's not the ideal way, it's not the most economical way to do it because every time you stop, it takes you another week to remember where you'd actually got to and what you were physically doing at the time. So there, there is an element of try to keep that flow of work going. So that's our challenge. And uh, it's what we're rising to, but it's going to take time. Okay, thank, thank you very much, uh, Alan. Big hand for Alan, please, and the People's Mosquito.
thank you very much. Um, I just say, I think I mentioned it before, but if I haven't, I'm mentioning it again now. If you do want to buy any of the merchandise, Graham and uh, Bruce are at the back there, happy to, to help you out. And uh, hopefully, if you, if you didn't get a leaflet and want one, I'm sure we've got a few spare at the back. Or if you want to take any home, encourage you to and your friends to, to sign up for the newsletters. So thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank, thanks, Alan.